he was acting on his instinct and his intellect to try to do enormously important things in the social policy area. This is Can Do, a podcast that explores the essential lessons for business success. As the world continues to feel the effects of the coronavirus, uncertainty and unpredictability have become the status quo. It has never been more important to learn from entrepreneurs and industry experts about their experiences and to hear their advice. Whether you're a business owner, entrepreneur, or your career is affected by the current economic climate, lessons shared by our guests can help you make informed decisions about your future. I'm your host, Arnie Sherman. We don't often think about the long-term influences of national, social, and domestic policy on the fabric of our society and our economic vitality. Programs put in place decades ago still guide our direction as a nation and are the underpinnings of the continued public debate on what is the proper role of government in a democratic society. In his book, The Last Liberal Republican, John Roy Price talks about his time as a senior domestic policy advisor for Richard Nixon. Nixon surprised Democrats and shocked conservatives with an ambitious agenda in the areas of welfare, hunger, and health. He proposed a program of guaranteed family income, expanded the existing food stamps program, and launched nutritional education and children's food services in schools. Today on Can Do, we are joined by author, historian, and savvy investment expert John Roy Price. He's a Rhodes Scholar who studied at Oxford and received his law degree from Harvard. Price was a managing director of Chase Manhattan Bank, as well as president and CEO of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Pittsburgh. He also served as senior domestic policy advisor to Richard Nixon. We're discussing Price's candid insights into the Nixon White House and his views on how the agenda for America launched by Nixon has fared over the years. We'll also talk about how the changing nature of our political parties and partisan discourse challenges the basic makeup of our economic livelihood and society in general. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by the Dennis and Phyllis Washington Foundation, dedicated to investing in people to improve the quality of their lives. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. Welcome, John Roy Price. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you. Great to be back in Montana. You certainly have an interesting background and career in public service, banking, finance, and now as an author. What was the impetus for writing The Last Liberal Republican? It had been 50 years, and if I was ever going to do it, (laughs) I'd better get to it. Uh, It was about my days as a callow youth of 30 years forward for three years in the Nixon White House and what led up to it. And Why did you call it the last liberal republic? I think for good reasons. Uh, Nixon was very much in the tradition of the more progressive wing of the Republican Party. Most people today have never heard of Thomas E. Dewey. He ran twice as the GOP candidate. He was a New York governor. He lost twice and uh, to uh, FDR and then to to, um, Terry Truman. Uh, But he then was in the Eisenhower White House as vice president. And Dewey and Eisenhower had kept alive and burning the gleam, if you will, of more progressive republicanism. They were different from what Hoover became and from what Bob Taft represented in the conservatives in the Senate. You bring up an interesting point. 
that Republican Party of 50 years ago was not necessarily synonymous with conservative, nor was the Democratic Party synonymous with liberal. What's happened? I think uh, many things, including money and media. But uh, to go back to 50 years ago, there was that struggle going on even at the time. And Eisenhower had vanquished the conservatives to get nominated in 1952 and became a moderate centrist uh, president, very popular, and also expanding Social Security, creating the tax code uh, way of implementing employee uh, health insurance through their employers. So he was moving on to fill in the safety nets holes. And Richard Nixon just was the final or last gasp of that Eisenhower moderate Republican effort. How would you compare what the view of a social safety net was then to what it is now? It was, well, if you go back to the Depression, the Great Depression, there wasn't any. There was no unemployment insurance. There was no Social Security. There was no aid to dependent children. Uh, and so the safety net was basically zero in the 1930s until the New Deal. And the view in the 50s of the safety net was that, hey, we had just fought a world war. We are not going to come back from that and fight a war to kill the New Deal. So the prevailing mood in post-war America was one of accepting those things the New Deal had put in place to protect the economic security of most Americans. And now when we talk about social safety net, is it, uh, is it an expansion of that or is it uh, a continuation of that? Well, thinking? the, the uh, epithet against efforts today to do more or too much more in some people's view. The epithet is it's socialist. Well, that's what the Social Security Act was accused of being by conservatives. Would, would you want to give up your Social Security because it is socialist? Similarly, you're not the age yet, but you're, you're Medicare. And uh, I think most people would answer no. Let me get back to the book. You said it 50 years, and it's about time. Yeah. How long did it take you to write it? 10 years. 10 years. I, got, I turned back to it because I was asked to give a talk over at Oxford about Nixon, and it just made me start to think. And I had come from a family basically nonpartisan. They voted Republican, but they weren't, uh, you know, shrill or adamant or flaring nostril or wide-eyed about it. And uh, so I thought that Nixon was uh, – I, I don't apologize for him, for the things which people all are aware of. But there were these things which just had been completely submerged where he was acting on his instinct and his intellect to try to do enormously important things in the social policy area. And as you've uncovered that aspect of him that hasn't been exposed as well, what's been the reaction to it? The, the same thing you might expect, which is that uh, Nixon always understood that there were Nixon haters. He generated very, very powerful animus. And almost in a Newtonian law of action and reaction, he was up to responding to that. <laughs> so, they, you know, it's sort of a, a game of uh, upping the ante all the time in terms of the, the ill will and animus and shrillness. But uh, at the same time, people are astonished that Nixon, for example, food stamps, when he came into office, the food stamp program might have been in most counties in the state, 
need not have been. Not all states had the program. What he did was to say, this is insane. So he pulled it all together, worked with the Congress, importantly, worked with the Congress, and basically made it a uniform program of eligibility and of benefits, and it was the first ever income guarantee or negative income tax in American history. You mentioned you work with Congress, and for our listeners, the Congress, both houses were democratic. Absolutely, controlled. for the first time since uh, I think it was Tyler. And President was that Tyler? And was that part of the reason that he brought Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Democrat, sure. in to run the office of? Uh, sure, it was multiple reasons. One was yes, he wanted to pull in some Democrat. He actually tried Sergeant Shriver, who was uh, Kennedy's brother-in-law. But uh, Shriver insisted on too much. He was a very partisan Democrat, member of the Kennedy family. So Nixon finally uh, kiboshed that. But yes, he looked. He even offered Hubert Humphrey, whom he had defeated in the 1968 campaign. He, fl- he went to uh, meet Mr. and Mrs. Humphrey right after the election and offered him the ambassadorship to the United Nations. So Pat Moynihan was, if not a first choice, he was a third choice, but he also suited the need of the times. Pat Moynihan was the head of the Joint Center on Urban Studies at Harvard-MIT. The cities were in flames. There were over 100 cities that had race riots in 1967-68. And so the race issue was, was very powerful. The question of urban decay was preeminent. And so Nixon reached out for substantive reasons, not just wanting to have uh, a token Democrat somewhere around. And as we know, he got elected in 1969, right after Martin Luther King assassination and Bobby Kennedy's assassination was still fresh in the minds of everyone. Yes. And it's interesting because there was a lot of similarity from that year of the election campaign to recently. And as I say, you had cities smoldering. You had uh, the Chicago Democratic Convention ended in, you know, police billy clubs uh, being descending on the heads of protesters. And so Nixon took a very Quaker approach in his uh, inaugural address in which he really called for quiet. He said, we can't, we can't hear each other if the noise level is this way. Let's quiet down. Let's calm down. It was a very nonpartisan, very, very a method of calming the public. And this spoke very much to an instinct within Nixon. I don't apologize for the others, but there was this side of him. And he tried to put it out there in a time of enormous unsettlement and unrest. And how did you find your way into the White House? I was a youngster who came from a basically Republican family, but as I say, not, not partisan. And when I went to law school, I, I found myself among a bunch of, bunch of people who uh, were interested in policy, not just elective politics, but policy. You know, what do you do about China recognition? What do you do about the fiscal difficulties of states? What do you do about welfare? And uh, as a consequence of that, I wound up through this group being noticed by people in the more senior circles of moderate Republican politics. And I wound up working for Nelson Rockefeller, who was governor of New York and who really was the liberal candidate to oppose the Barry Goldwater movement, which was the conservative movement in the 60s, and also Richard Nixon. And then when we, Goldwater, uh, I'm sorry, when we, Rockefeller, lost the nomination in 68, 
Nixon reached out to me and said, would you work on the campaign? And I, after much debate, agreed, and the rest was history, as I recount. You mentioned uh, policy thinkers. What's happened to the serious policy thinkers in the Republican Party? We used to have William Buckley and Bill Kristol and William Bennett and Gene Kirkpatrick and people like that. Yes. You, don't, you don't see that anymore. What, what, what's well, and those And those are merely the people you mentioned who were in the Reagan era. And earlier than that, you had George Shultz as Nixon's Secretary of Labor. You, you had uh, George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, who'd been three-time governor of Michigan and a liberal Republican. So uh, policy was an important ingredient of what you were supposed to do when you, when you got elected. Then, then is the business of governing, not just of rhetoric. And so how has that dissipated over the last 30 I, years I or think so? it's, it's been partly that each party has moved more toward, uh, more toward an ideological direction. And what that's meant is that the nomination of candidates for local office, Congress, U.S. Senate, President, have moved uh, more into uh, the place where the, the extreme elements of a party have a little bit more clout, whether you're talking about progressive Democrats or whether you're talking about arch-conservative Republicans. So it's partly that you, you've had more power given to the extremes in the, in the process of choosing your candidates. And once you're in, you're worried about the next primary. Can you compare the bipartisanship of that era, of Nixon's era, with the strident partisanship of today? And how do we get here? I, it's so many things. It's so many things. Some of them are just elementary. Like, you know the name Lamar Alexander. Sure. And he was a United States senator until January this, this year. Um, multi-term, then governor before that of Tennessee and secretary of education. And he was in the Republican leadership uh, until about eight years ago, number three in the in Senate Republican leadership. And he decided not to run again for the leadership post. Reason? He was advocating six, eight years ago that the Democrats and the Republican couples get together. They go for picnics together on weekends in Washington. They fraternize something dangerous. And he then concluded he would not be reelected to his post by his Republican colleagues, the peers. So he did not run for reelection for the party post. And that was in, that was a you know, that was the canary in the coal mine. But you also have uh, the influence of the media, you know, unlike the Nixon era when you had the three dominant, uh, you know, news networks, all of which simultaneously Lyndon Johnson watched. He had a three TV console structure in his Oval Office. But so then it was a much more homogenized, frankly, presentation of the news. You had uh, William F. Buckley Jr.'s National Review, which was starting to publish, and you had always the left-wing publications. But they didn't command the audiences that they did in the print media and certainly now in the media, which we are enjoying right here today. Looking back over the 50 years since you were in the White House, what do you think has been the social and economic legacy of President Nixon? Well, food stamps is a powerful one, and it's just not known by people. It's now called SNAP, the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, and it feeds tens of millions of people who otherwise would be utterly destitute. Also, you didn't even mention his health insurance proposal. Richard Nixon, 40 years before Obama, 
proposed coverage of pre-existing conditions with his health insurance policy proposals, which would have relied on the private sector. It also included a vast array of, uh, you know, pediatric services, long-term care, payment for prescription drugs for all, and it was all done through the private sector. And basically, Obamacare was adopting much of Richard Nixon's structure and proposals. And what happened was the Republicans, oh, Obama's for it, we're against it. The Heritage Foundation, up until the point where Obama was elected and proposed that, was saying, with Heritage Foundation being a, a primary conservative think tank, said, oh, we have, to, if we have to force every single individual to purchase health insurance. Let it, let's let it be like automobile insurance. Everybody buys into the risk pool. But the moment Obama was elected, came down off their website. So it was, it's partly pure politics, but Nixon's legacy is not just concretely in food stamps, also in really the structure of the Affordable Care Act. And finally, the piece of his welfare reform that made it was a negative income tax or guaranteed income for the blind, the disabled, and the elderly poor or indigent. So those are lasting, lasting impacts. We're having a battle royal now on tax the rich debate. You know, Reagan lowered the top rates from 70 to 50 percent and corporate taxes now are flat 21 percent. In 81, they were 46 percent. What are your thoughts on that matter? Reagan uh, did indeed lower taxes, and he came from California, and you had a proposition out there on property taxes which rang the bell, and that was the beginning of this great movement of tax reduction. Uh, but basically, Reagan's worldview was different from Nixon's. Uh, Nixon believed there were essential services that had to be provided by an active federal or central government. Reagan basically said government is the problem. Milton Friedman, the economist, is now uh, through the echo of the Hoover Institution saying the same thing. Um, Nixon even proposed keeping a surtax on the rich to help pay for the war. He didn't believe in deficit financing for a matter of national interest. So that's a real different mindset. Mind you, he would be happier with lower taxes, but he said there are essential things. And you go back to Moynihan. When Reagan started proposing that, uh, Nick, uh, Reagan uh, was saying cut taxes. Moynihan said, whoa, your whole strategy is starve the beast. If you deny them tax revenues, that means you can cut social programs. And that's the way it played out. That's the way it played out. You're involved with Foreign Relations Council. You were one of the founders of the Ripon Society. I want to talk about what your opinion is about the U.S. standing in the world today. Not great. Uh, two words, not great. <laughs> and, why, and why is that? Well, I think that it's, it's partly because, you know, Americans just don't understand uh, how essential it is for us still to play this role. Or the ones who will start picking up the vacuum are not folks that we would be happy someday having hegemony over us. I think that's the key thing. It's, it's as difficult and strange a time now for us as it was for Britain at the end of World War II, you know. Um, who is going to be a dominant 
player? And what would that mean in terms of the things we've become accustomed to? Uh, so it, it's a it's a very very different world and one in which I don't feel comfortable as we now are. I, th- I think it has been partly exacerbated by the discord in Trump, but I I think that uh, you know a lot of a lot of the antipathy that the American people now feel and which was voiced by Trump is real, and he had good grounds for it. We were we were just not properly taking account of it. So Nixon famously went to China. Yes. And opened China. Yes. Looking back on that, was that a was good idea? Was it a good idea or yes. not a good idea? <laughs> uh, I think at the time it was probably a realistic idea. And in fact, Nixon had been uh, musing about it as early as 1960 when he was running the first time in his own right for president and got defeated by Kennedy. But uh, he tried to talk about it in the 1968 campaign, and Pat Buchanan and some oil people in Texas, I, I saw the letter they wrote to him, said, you'll lose the right wing. They'll go crazy if you do this. And Nixon himself said, the two things for which I will re- be remembered, unfortunately, are only the China opening and Watergate. He lamented that. You talked about the role of the U.S. in the world economy, obviously China is playing a much more uh, expanded role. Yes. And how do we adjust ourselves well, to that Well, that's situation? a tough, that's a fascinating question because you have, uh, people are talking about an emergent new Cold War. In the old one with which I was somewhat familiar and you came in at the, the latter parts of it yourself with your dealings in Russia or the Soviet Union, in that period, you did not have the kinds of economic entanglements and trade and interaction and interchanges uh, that we today have with China. You just did not have it with the Soviet Union. There were uh, men of good intention and luckily of some judgment on both sides or the Cuban Missile Crisis would have resulted in nuclear catastrophe and you never would have had strategic arms limitation. But it's very different today. It's, it's more like pre-World War I, where you had uh, no passports, no visas required. You just moved from country to country, and you had trade between all the powers, which within weeks or months later were at war. I'm speaking with John Roy Price, author and former senior domestic policy advisor to Richard Nixon. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by Montana Rail Link committed to safely delivering transportation solutions to their customers and partners. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. You were a bank CEO during the economic downturn of 2008 and all of the uh, implications from all of that. What, what are your thoughts looking back on that now? Well, it was the Great Recession, uh, and that was a good name and for good reason. And it came as close as anything we've ever experienced to the Great Depression of the 30s. And it was the consequence, I think, of uh, greed at the most elementary level. Uh, my bank was, a, was an interesting thing because it was one of 12 GSEs, government-sponsored enterprises, which had been created in the midst of the Great Depression by none other than Herbert Clark Hoover, 
Republican president in order to provide liquidity to the finance sector, which was was dying on the vine in the 1930s. We, too, were doing that in the in the 08 uh, post-Lehman collapse. But what had happened there was it was a result of a host of new technologies of intricate, uh, supposedly mathematically pure inventions that people came up with to create new kinds of securities to issue to the public to make more liquid the broad mortgage market. And what happened was you had an, an escalation of, of mis- understandings or outright greed between rating agencies, mortgage originators, mortgage brokers, what we call bundlers, who are the folks who pool these mortgages together, the cash flows from which are supposed to support the issuance of debt securities out into the capital markets. And it was just, you know, they all winked along the way. And I got Uh, deposed because my bank sued Standard & Poor's and Moody's for their having put their AAA stamp of approval on securities that we had bought. And they finally settled. They realized that they couldn't turn back our accusations. We're more than a decade past that now. Things improved? Are there safeguards in place? Basically, yes, better off. I mean, the capital requirements for banks themselves have been increased, so the shareholders are going to bear the much bigger first hit if there are terrible losses. But the so-called too-big-to-fail doctrine is still, I'm sure, somewhere in the closet just waiting to be pulled out when the weather gets cold. We're still struggling with the COVID pandemic. Um, housing issues are chronic across America. What, what's your thoughts about? Well, look the- at look at what's happened with with some of the interesting behavior patterns of people uh, deciding since they don't have to go to work in downtown Chicago or midtown Manhattan, uh, they have been buying properties in exurbs or upstate New York or in rural Wisconsin and so on. My son, I want to talk about Montana, my son who lives on the west side of Manhattan, now at Broadway and 89th, with his wife, both of whom could easily have worked remotely, they looked at at Bozeman because my son knew Bozeman since we started hunting in Montana 30 years ago. He said, Dad, the price per square foot in Bozeman is now equal to what I would have to pay on the west side of Manhattan in New York City. Full stop. So he said, they can't do that. And uh, I should have bought property in Bozeman 25 years ago. Well, hindsight always is a good you know, indicator Naturally, of yes. things. The rearview mirror is wonderful. And, wh- and why do you think that's the case? Why, why do we find ourselves in 2021 with property in Bozeman equivalent to New York property? Well, I think uh, it's partly things like California and Oregon. I mean, I'm sure the data would support the idea that it's a huge number of Californians who are leaving that uh, somewhat stressed and even imperiled state, not just because of wildfires and and floods, but tax policies and so on, Um, and moving to a, a much more accommodating and delightful place. Here I am, Missoula, uh, home in Livingston. Uh, why wouldn't people come to Montana? What lessons can be gleaned from your careful reexamination of the Nixon legacy, particularly from 50 years forward? I think that the issue still is there of poverty. And Nixon 
focused on that. And the family assistance plan, his income guarantee for families with children, was talking about not services, but about money in the hands of the poor. That's back. That's back. The whole child tax credit feels and looks a lot like Nixon's welfare reform. And interestingly, Mitt Romney on the Republican side had an idea out there which was very much like like Nixon's. Um, And I don't know that the Republicans are going to be able to swallow and support something as critical as a child tax credit or not. Probably not. But it is exactly what Nixon understood. His family assistance plan would have virtually eliminated poverty in the United States. But the conservatives and the liberals ganged up against it. Conservatives said, too active as central government, it's redistributionist. The liberals said, it's Richard Nixon. That's all they had to say, right? That was all they needed. Congress just approved President Biden's one7 $5 trillion. We're talking trillions now, not billions. Infrastructure bill. What's that going to do for America? It's very important in many respects. First, it is an indication that there is some potential for working across the aisle. Because what happened was in the Senate in particular, uh, there was true and deep uh, bipartisan negotiation that led to it. Secondly, it's really urgently needed. It is about a country, ours, which has a declining quality of our infrastructure. Our roads are dangerous. Our interstate highways have collapsed in major cities. Amtrak could be doing so much more to uh, relieve not just pollution, but to uh, offer connections between cities. Um, As I say, water, pure water, and replacing lead pipes, these are essentials that we have completely overlooked. And I'll tell you, if you've traveled abroad, which I know you have, you look at the airports into which you fly, in Singapore, in Beijing, in you name it, anywhere, they make our airports look shameful, shameful. Why did it take so long to get this done? because of a resistance to spending the money to do it. And it's, it's like deferred maintenance, a landlord owning a property. He doesn't want to spend the money on improvements. He's got the cash flow from the taxes, and he wants to go around and do with it what he'd like, which is to lower the taxes and claim credit for that, not for, not for uh, keeping at bay the potential of lives lost from you know lead pipe water, or bridges collapsing, or other things like that. So last question, let me loop back to Richard Nixon. If he was alive today looking at the way our system, our economy, our governance was operating, what do you think his thoughts would be? He always believed that the government had a role to play to protect the people who were not otherwise protected. So he probably would still believe setting aside his political tactician skills. I think where his gut probably would be would be to say there are parts of this proposed what I call soft infrastructure bill which we should really look at, like the child tax credit, 
And he himself proposed much expanded daycare and job training. He was very much for what you'd call the soft infrastructure needs of, of the people. And so and he'd be, he understands partisan politics. <laughs> he was a bit adept at that. He was the target of it, and he was uh, pretty good, uh, you know, with the, looking down the scope site at, at the uh, people whom he was targeting. But he also had a sense of the country. And he came from that Eisenhower era, that era of good feelings and of the need to be sure that the country was looking out for its least looked out for. John Roy Price, it was a pleasure talking with you today. I appreciate your coming here. My pleasure. Great to be with you. I appreciate your listening to Can Do, produced by Lena Beck and Tom Barish in association with Montana Public Radio. For comments, recommendations for future guests, or general information, please go to mtpr.org. There you'll find previous guest contact information and content from all our shows. Listen next time when I'll be talking with another insightful guest. I'm Arnie Sherman, wishing you good health and prosperity.